50 years ago this month, then-tennis superstar Billie Jean King agreed to play in a highly lucrative exhibition match against former Wimbledon champ Bobby Riggs, a man nearly twice her age. The spiel was called the Battle of the Sexes too, and, although light-hearted, was also in deadly earnest. It was a time when recently turned women's professionals were campaigning for greater equality and take-home winnings. Riggs didn't believe women were worth what they claimed to be worth and took to the court against King to prove it. What took place one September night in Houston's Astrodome remains one of the most fascinating, tawdry and culturally significant moments in the history of professional tennis. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Costing a full sum of 50 cents, Time Magazine's front cover for their Monday, September 10, 1973 issue, featured a cartoon of a middle-aged man with two prominent mole-like front teeth, a thinning fringe, and a puffed-out hamster's cheeks. The figure is wearing tinted glasses and a tennis shirt. He looks like a hyperactive shrew. Further clues abound. In the foreground, we see a slice of tennis racket. Closer observation reveals that the breast pocket of the shirt has a pig on it, framed by the words, quote, male chauvinist. A diagonal strip across the top right-hand corner of the time cover has the words, the happy hustler, across it, and, just in case we fail to spot who is being caricatured, the magazine's cartoonist, the estimable Mort Drucker, gives us the subject's name, Bobby Riggs. Does this, dear listener, ring any distant bells? Inside the magazine's splendid cover, we are treated to eight pages of breezy knowingness on the upcoming Battle of the Sexes 2 tennis match between Riggs, aged 55, and Billie Jean King, aged 29, at the Houston Astrodome in Texas. The match has come about because, after watching Billie Jean at Wimbledon earlier that year, Riggs, a former Wimbledon men's singles champion in 1939, has come up with a dare. Some are less kind. They call it one of the biggest hustles tennis has ever seen. The dare is this. In order to prove the male of the species superiority, Riggs has dared King play him in a five-set match of exhibition tennis. In Riggs's own words, quote, You insist that top woman players provide a brand of tennis comparable to men's. I challenge you to prove it. I contend that you not only cannot beat a top male player, but that you can't beat me, a tired old man. Never one to keep the hyperbole safely tucked away, Riggs had, at the time of quoting, already beaten Margaret Court in what had been dubbed the Battle of the Sexes One. Riggs had challenged King first, but when she declined, he plumped for court. Good-naturedly, court said yes, but she couldn't have thought her way through the implications of that yes. She had just given birth to her first child, for example, so probably wasn't in the kind of fetal and fitness that she needed to be. Shortly before the Battle of the Sexes 1 was due to kick off in Ramona, California, 
on Mother's Day 1973, Riggs presented court with a bunch of roses. Falling prey to Wimbledon protocol, she curtsied upon receiving them in front of 5,000 spectators. It was not, shall we say, equivalent to breaking the Riggs serve early. Immediately, court found herself off balance. Although the Australian had been the world number one for seven consecutive seasons at the time of the exhibition match against Riggs, she was badly beaten 6-2, 6-1 on the day. It led wags in the press seats to quip that Margaret was outflanked, both on and off the court. Reflecting on the fate that might have befallen her, King was impressed with neither the court curtsy nor court's all-round courtcraft. Quote, when I finally saw the film of the match and watched him present her with those roses and Margaret curtsy, I yelled, Margaret, you idiot! You played right into his hands. If that was me, I would have grabbed him and kissed him. He's not going to jive me. If he gets too dirty, I can get tough too. Emboldened by his win against court, Riggs challenged King. This time around, she accepted. Not only had King seen Court being beaten by the loathsome Riggs, she was by this stage a representative for women's rights in tennis, notably for a fair wage. It was not only a challenge she wanted to accept, it was a challenge she couldn't be seen to reject. At the 1970 Italian Open, for example, she earned prize money of $600 for winning the woman's title, while the Romanian, Elena Stasi, won $3,500 for winning the men's. Such wage differentials were all too common at the time. King and some of her fellow female professionals thought this was wrong. They were backed up by growing discontent from the mass of recreational woman tennis players, women at large, and a group of enlightened men. The serve-and-volley game between those who supported the status quo and those who were campaigning for change was on. King, from Baptist and Methodist stock, had always stood up for herself. She was mouthy and her moral universe was full of knowns. She had a strong sense of herself as different. As a girl in California, she was prevented from appearing in a team photograph at her club in Long Beach because, rather than wearing a customary tennis dress, she wore a pair of tennis shorts, sewed for her by her mother. In 1970, by now a world-renowned player and a member of what was dubbed the Original Nine, King and her eight compatriots decided to campaign for a reduction in the prize money gap at the Pacific Southwest Championships in Los Angeles. When tournament director Jack Kramer refused to entertain their requests, the nine women boycotted his tournament and played in their own competition in Houston instead. The Houston event was the first tournament on what came to be known as the Virginia Slims Circuit. Later, the circuit was expanded with better prize money than what had been the case on the traditional tour. Although the original nine were banned from the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association events, their resolve couldn't be broken. The Virginia Slims Circuit gathered momentum and, in 1973, the Women's Tennis Association was born. By the time of Riggs's second challenge after Court's loss, King was an ambassador for values far larger than herself. Besides, she also cottoned on to the opportunity, money-making and otherwise, 
inherent in the Riggs match, even appearing in a television advert for an electric razor on a Boeing 747 with him. By September 1973, King was nearly 30. She had already won five of her six Wimbledon titles and three of her four U.S. Open titles. Her career had reached its zenith. Athletes have an uncanny knack for knowing when their powers are dwindling. Unseen by others, and probably only imperceptible, King's form and fitness were drifting softly away from her gifts. Riggs, a man to whom the phrase craven self-publicist hardly does justice, was in his element when King said, Yes, I do. The Battle of the Sexes too was scheduled, and this time television stations jumped at the chance to televise the exhibition live, ABC doing so in prime time and paying $750,000 for the privilege. The purse for the winner was apparently pegged at $100,000, but this was misleading because Riggs and King lent their names to all kinds of value-added extras and fripperies, from lapel badges to popcorn. This meant that the winner in Houston was more likely to pocket $200,000 and the loser $100,000 than the loser getting nothing at all. If the past is, as they say, another country, the USA in September 1973 was not only notionally another country, it was actually another country too. Let's have a look at what it looked like, just to get some kind of feel for the political and economic lie of the land. The last American combat soldiers left Vietnam in March of that year. The cost of the war was astronomically high, from both a human and an economic point of view. Nearly 60,000 troops dead, nearly 150,000 Americans wounded. The war bit a hefty chunk out of the national purse and contributed massively to a polarized Cold War world. National morale in the USA in 1973 was not as high as Riggs's opinion of himself. Depending on what source you consult, Inflation in the States was running at between 6.2% and 8.7%, what became known as the guns or butter debate, the idea that by stressing one term obliged you to factor in opportunity cost with the other, had entered economic orthodoxy. The American ship was all at sea. As the Time article referred to earlier said, quote, but Riggs, properly overage and frivolous, came along at the confluence of two phenomena, the rise of woman's lib and the country's need, more desperate than ever, to be entertained. Watergate, inflation, shortages, the catalogue of ills is dispiriting. Some buffoonery and sex offer a welcome change. Woman's lib had many strands. The 1960s, for instance, was a time of growing awareness and debate about contraception and reproductive health. The first contraceptive pill became widely available in 1960, but contained high doses of estrogen, which was feared to cause blood clots, heart attacks, and even strokes. At congressional hearings in 1970, feminists campaigned for a reduction in the pill's estrogen level, and afterwards the pill was produced with a fraction of the hormone's quantities. Such were the times, as they say, the subtle cultural wrestle, the horizon, against which Battle of the Sexes II was played. 
Come the night in Houston, and there was grand hoopla after weeks of publicity and pantomime, with the protagonists entering into the spirit of the occasion with gusto. A plane load of pumped-up punters jetted in from a Las Vegas casino. MS, a feminist magazine of the day, encouraged their readers to step forth and shout for King. Wearing a white cotton tennis dress with a kind of paisley patterning around the shoulders and buttons down the front, King arrived on a litter held at each corner by four muscle-bound young men. They were dressed, appropriately the organizers thought, as ancient slaves. Riggs arrived on a rickshaw pulled by a group of curvaceous models. He wore a yellow and red sugar daddy windbreaker and presented a sugar daddy lollipop to King, who exchanged it for a squealing piglet symbolic of male chauvinism. The crowd of 30,472, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, and an estimated 90 million viewers back home, lapped it up as if they were watching a cartoon. In a sense, they were. Hadn't Time's cartoonist represented Riggs as a slightly feral creature, a gerbil or a shrew? Both protagonists reminded people of animals, and the entire event moved insistently towards caricature. It was a zoo. Quote, I'm pigeon-toed, said King, while Bobby waddles like a duck. Maybe this match should be billed as the duck versus the pigeon. From a distance of 50 years, it's difficult to know just how seriously Riggs took the exhibition match. A week beforehand, he repaired to San Diego to work on his game. If his time spent practicing wasn't of long duration, his consumption of pills and proteins was of the highest order. Consider his daily regime. 75 liver extract pills, protein powder, 100 soybean wheat germ concentrate pills, vitamins A, B1, B2 and B complex, C and E. The time it takes to swallow all that down makes it a veritable five-setter. Still, Pills couldn't completely push back the years. Riggs placed a two-way bet in the sense that he also made it widely known that there were many areas, stamina for one, in which he considered King superior to his creaky 55-year-old self. But Riggs was nothing if not consistent in his rampant inconsistency. He was a difficult man to pin down. He also claimed zen master-like, to know the outcome of a point in advance of it happening. He had a kind of third tennis eye, which Riggs would appear on the day. Nobody really knew. King, for her part, had only two eyes with which to drive her pugnacious all-round game. Who would bet against her? Riggs might have had his way with court on Mother's Day, but bumptious Billie Jean was a different proposition come that Thursday night in September at the Houston Astrodome. Although she lost her serve early in the first set, King regrouped. By moving Riggs from one side of the court to the other, King wore the 55-year-old down. She focused on his backhand, the weaker of his two sides. All that protein powder and soybean wheat germ concentrate couldn't help him now. He took off his sugar daddy windbreaker and began to break sweat. As the set progressed, he was forced to take things more seriously than he'd started off doing. 
Imperceptibly, all the jive talk and buffoonery was cast aside. He lost his serve and lost the first set, 6-4. The first to three sets in the five-set game would take the purse and bragging rights well into October. Finding that he was being beaten from the baseline, Riggs started attacking the net. The tactical change didn't bother King in the slightest. The third eye counted for nothing now. More and more, Riggs just looked like a craven opportunist with a mouth in excess of his talents. King was no court. She wasn't going to be unsettled with roses. After winning the first set 6-4, she sauntered to the second, 6-3. Riggs again had his serve broken in the third set, which King mopped up 6-3 to take the $200,000 purse, a far better purse, need we be reminded than the $600 she had won for winning the Italian Open three years before. The record doesn't show if Riggs was gracious in defeat, but in a sense he didn't lose. He loved the limelight. What other American tennis player of his vintage was going to pull in excess of $100,000 for three sets with a dame? Bobby was in his element. Winning or losing was besides the point. It was the biggest win of his career. Speculation has long swirled that Bobby's Battle of the Sexes 2 exhibition match against King was rigged. Riggs would bet on one of two frogs jumping across the summer lawn. He was known as a compulsive gambler. He was known, too, to be friends with Jimmy the Greek, the so-called Wizard of Odds. Jimmy was a Vegas bookie, an all-round, open-minded individual who didn't have the most liberal views on the equality of the races. He was finally relieved of his gig as a television pundit when his opinions of black sportsmen were revealed to be horribly backward. Whether Riggs lost on purpose, no one can say for sure. He would have needed to have found odds in his favour, but he was also well connected with those who liked to flatter. Maybe he placed several bets on the side. Speculation has drifted down through the years, but nothing definitive has been proven one way or the other. There's also a problem with saying that he threw the match because it denigrates King's achievements. To suggest as much also puts one in the unwanted position of appearing to be against woman's lib and the broader canvas of what King was fighting for. As King said at the time, and note her use of the collective pronoun, quote, I thought it would set us back 50 years if we didn't win that match. It would ruin the woman's tour and set back all of woman's self-esteem. There's something else. The tram lines, as it were, within which the story has been framed, have stressed King and Riggs as binary opposites, both literally and metaphorically standing on different sides of the net. Even basic structural analysis shows the straightforward play of opposites, Riggs the older man versus King the younger woman. Riggs the representative of the amateur age, against King the flag-bearer for emerging professionalism. Riggs the backward-looking conservative, against King the tough-talking emancipationist. We could go on, but let's leave it at that. Looking back over a distance of 50 years, we can now see more clearly the neglected similarities between the two. We'll get to those similarities in a moment but a corollary of the event's neglected similarities is that the story both likes and needs Riggs, 
to stay on their respective sides of the net, doesn't it? As a result, the story is more digestible, more accessible, and therefore closer to moral fable. As far as similarities were concerned, both, for example, were from conservative, deeply striving Californian families. Both families were blue-collar. Riggs was the son of a preacher, while King was the daughter of a fireman. Her mother was a talented swimmer and dancer. Sporting prowess wasn't in short supply in either family. It's not surprising, then, that both Riggs and King were sporty from a young age. King played softball before converting to the more feminine pursuit of tennis aged 11. While Riggs did pretty much everything, playing everything from baseball to doing track. The thing was to be out and about. As children, they often utilized public courts, tracks and fields, never private ones. Being competitive was valued in both homes. Both were muscularly self-asserting, although King's home life seems to have been more rounded. Her mother insisted, for example, that she play piano as a child. During the COVID-19 quarantine, King posted on Instagram, quote, The arts will get us through this. How I love my piano. Where they were different is that Riggs was never quite good enough for the tennis establishment, while King appears to have been moulded to a greater degree by her mother into a slightly more subservient soul, although she remained feisty in life and aggressive on the court. Riggs was free-range as a boy, left largely to his own devices with his older brothers, providing the paternal roles. He was always of the view that he should have made the American Davis Cup team earlier than he did, but the powers that be saw him as an upstart and an outlaw. He might not have been dangerous, but sport is nothing if not a conformist environment, and he was dangerous enough. The Riggs mouth could not be tamed. Always the happy hustler, Riggs was none too subtle about accepting money as part of his winnings, an act which gave lie to the stuffy, manicured lawn amateurism of the age. There were other more compliant male figures, like Don Budge and Fred Perry, around. Why take a punt on Bobby when there were more reliable bankers in the race? Two of Riggs's seminal tennis influences were women, the first was Esther Bartosz, a university anatomy instructor and highly rated amateur player in Los Angeles. The second was Eleanor Tennant, who played an important role in the development of Alice Marble, who won the Wimbledon women's title in 1939, the same year as Riggs, pairing up with him that year to also win the Wimbledon mixed doubles title. Tennant, nicknamed Teach for her coaching abilities, was a fine player in the 1920s rather than an out-and-out champion. She took to coaching and was the resident coaching pro at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where she coached Charlie Chaplin, Groucho Marx, Joan Crawford and Marlena Dietrich. A young Riggs came under her spell. His refusal to use the overhead smash while under her tutelage led to many an altercation. She seems to have been patient and encouraging, but she was never a soft touch. Still alive shortly before the Riggs vs. King exhibition match, she predicted that Riggs would win it. This said, 
she wasn't completely enamoured with the rig's patter, the rig's rigmarole, the rig's shtick. The fine time article with which we started this podcast, it's excellent by the way and freely available online, portrayed Riggs as an unreconstructed huckster, forever on the make. What it didn't point out, perhaps because it wasn't yet clear, was that the Battle of the Sexes too was vital in King's development as the acceptable face of woman's tennis. As we've already pointed out, she was in the twilight of her career at the time and she was looking for other opportunities. What happened that night in Houston was more than simply useful. It was a straight sets win for her future career. King's bank balance soared and her social capital skyrocketed with it. Equality in women's tennis would become easier as a result. Riggs, the man who had a male chauvinist pig on his breast pocket in the cartoon on the cover of Time magazine, inadvertently played his part. How's that for a chapter in the growing book of unintended consequences? If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m.